0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It must be. Um, I bet it was a weird moment signing the contract for a film.
1: It was. It was cool, you know. It was, it was a <laughs> cool moment. Um, a little bit surreal. Yeah. You know, but I, I'm. I'm. I've always been a bit of a movie nerd. Yeah. Um,
0: and so <clears throat> a lot of references in the book to films. I can see.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm just excited because I'm. I'm contracted in as a co-producer as well, and. So I'll be able to direct a lot of what happens and have a lot of say in it, which is what I'm excited about. Um, yeah, sick. And I just, like with the books and everything, I just want to create something where people are like, wow. You know, and, and it it makes people think differently and it puts things in perspective for them and it, in some way, hopefully, potentially, can help. them. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think books like yours are important for people to read about the shit that actually goes on and the mm. stuff that actually happens to real people. Um, yeah. Because a lot of the time it's, it's kind of detached from real life. And yeah. like, oh, that, that did not happen to anyone you know, but like you said, you're just a boy from Plymouth. And, mm. the- and that's
1: what I'm doing in a movie too. I want to be the, the other thing as well that I, I'm very conscious of and I try and to do the complete opposite of this, like on my social media and stuff, is to be blasé with things and and act mm-hmm. like it was just yeah you know you got blown up they gave me some legs and I was walking again within a couple of months, mm. which <clears throat> technically is the case but it was ridiculously hard, yeah. um, you know especially for me I was the first triple amputee there was nothing in place I had to literally just smashed through all these brick walls I kept hitting and figuring stuff out on my team and you know was the, we were the first ones to actually have to tackle all these issues yeah um, and in the film I really want to go into the lows of all that and how difficult that was
0: yeah. well I'm sorry to interrupt you guys but that was actually all spoken about pre me introducing Mark on the podcast so I thought I'd just give you a little snippet there so you could see what we were talking about the rest of this podcast is amazing chat. It's so inspirational to listen to Mark talk about his story and what he's been through and what's going to be happening in the future for him. His book Man Down was fantastic and I loved every minute of it. But before we get on with today's episode, I do have to introduce to you a new sponsor. Now, mental health is something that I speak about quite often on this podcast and it's something that I'm really, really passionate about getting into people's ears and making sure that people can feel they have someone to talk to. So I've linked up with a company called BetterHelp. They are an online therapy company. They're in America, they're worldwide. You can be in touch with a therapist within under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line, like it's not self-help, this is professional counselling. It's done securely online by trained therapists. I love therapy myself, I've been having it online since March, since I got back from Australia. It's key for me and my mental health, but you don't have to just take it from me, of course. Take it from BetterHelp. On their website, you can read their testimonials. They're posted daily. If you visit betterhelp.com forward slash need to read and join over a million people that have taken charge of their mental health and started getting online therapy, you'll get 10% off your first month. Now, I don't need to tell you But as they're a sponsor of the podcast, I would financially gain. But you'll see with the sponsors of this podcast, I've actually reached out to them to make sure that I'm bringing you stuff that I can relate to and stuff that I believe in. So if you're interested in having therapy, this is about 40% cheaper than face-to-face therapists. And it is far, far quicker access. So it's betterhelp.com forward slash need to read that is with the word to and not the number so do it or don't do it it's up to you completely therapy's good for you that's my opinion i will kick on with this episode with mark ormrod you heard him speaking just then he's one of the most inspirational people that i've ever spoken to he's actually just been awarded an mbe um for his services to the charity sector and with the military which is fantastic i've only ever known one other person to be awarded something like that and that is my mum so you must be doing something right. I'll kick on with the chat. Thank you very much for listening guys. Take it easy and enjoy this one. Mark Ornrod, legend. Welcome to A Need To Read. Thanks for coming on man.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Uh, so um, the reason I have you on, you're the author of a book called Man Down and I've just, just finished reading it. It was a very emotional read and honest read but for for the listeners that haven't heard of the book or or heard of you um do you mind telling people a little bit about your backstory
1: yeah so I'm a former Royal Marine um joined the Royal Marines straight from school back in 2001 when I was 17 um was fortunate enough you know going through training back then um I managed to make it through in one hit It, it, it was back then 30 weeks I think now it the weeks are creeping up to somewhere near, near the thirty six now, the way they keep changing things.
0: Yeah, I've seen that.
1: Yeah, but um, four weeks before I finished my training, uh, so I, I passed out and out my Green Beret in October 2001. Uh, about four weeks before that, we saw September 11th. So, you know, from a very early point in my career, I, I knew straight away that I was going to be at the, the pointy end of the spear. And I was going to be out there doing what i just spent the last 30 plus weeks training to do, you know, and that's to be a frontline uh, elite infantry soldier. Mm. So I got out, got out of training uh, and did. Got trained straight away to go to Afghanistan in 2002 on something called Operation Chicana. Um, didn't end up going. Don't know why. Uh, it was It was built up to this big scale up and then it got really scaled back and I think it became more of an s f type thing, yeah, so just milled around in the u k doing the usual stuff you know winter deployments to Norway, learning how to survive in the Arctic, bit of boxing uh I think back then we went on exercise as well down to that was two thousand four we went to Virginia. But anyway, 2003 rolls around and Iraq became the focus for us back then. And so I deployed in early 2003 on something called Operation Telec 1, yeah. where we uh, we sat in Kuwait for a couple of weeks, pushed over that Kuwait-Iraqi border, stormed the oil fields, the palace, and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I spent three and a half months there. I was a little bit disillusioned with it. Uh, never fired around, was a mm. little bit, in a way, you know, gutted about that after having done all this training and, you know, been hyped up by everyone around me to apparently be this this elite soldier that people send in when they need a job doing and we got sent in and didn't do the job, you know? Yeah, so I was gutted about that. And then came back, that. settled in again, uh, another went in deployment, uh, sailed down to America, like I alluded to just now, and then early two thousand five, January two thousand five, my daughter was born, my first daughter. Mm. So I thought to myself, you know, you've done the training, you've got the green beret, you've been to war, you've done a bit in the Arctic, you've done the boxing, and all that kind of stuff. You've experienced a lot in your first five years. Mm. So maybe while you're young enough, it's a good idea to leave because you know I have this new responsibility you've got a family a daughter and you've got to be there
0: for them so put in my notice. you've done that at 22
1: i think it was 20 21 22 yeah yeah it's a lot (laughs) lot ticked off isn't it (laughs) i know i know um yeah so i left um with the intention of you know starting a new career while, while i was young enough yeah now as often happens uh Things didn't go to plan. I ended up separating from my daughter's mum. Went through a, a bit of a, a downward spiral. I retrained as a bodyguard out in South Africa, thinking mm. that was the next logical step. You know, I thought I was going to have this glamorous career, walking around London in a custom suit, talking into my collar and protecting Man, black
0: style.
1: <laughs> right? Protecting A-list celebrities. Uh, but that wasn't the reality of the job. Um, you either went to Iraq or Afghanistan living out of a bag again or from what I was hearing, I never did any any CP work in the UK. Um, it was just long hours, boring work, stood outside hotel rooms and, and that kind of stuff. So it, it never really picked up for me and I ended up working as a nightclub doorman for uh, about a year. Now, eventually, when... I realised life wasn't going the way that I wanted it to and I was struggling a little bit to, to get things to take off. I decided that I was going to go back into the Royal Marines, uh, pick up my career where I left off, um, go back to doing what I was good at and what I enjoyed. So I rejoined 2007 and by that time, uh, Afghanistan was back on, on our radar. So I went to 40 Commander in Taunton. And I fell straight into pre-deployment training with those guys. And on the 7th of September, 2007, uh, we deployed out to yeah. Afghanistan. Now, initially, uh, like 99% of the people that went out there, uh, I flew into a place called Camp Bastion, where we were due to you know, get briefings, acclimatize the weather, prep all of our kit and equipment, which we did. And then four days after that, myself and a handful of my friends were thrown on the back of a Chinook and flown out to a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson in the Helmand province, which was where all the uh, fighting was going on. Um, It was all a bit tasty. And uh, we were due to work out of this this fob in Helmand for the next six months. So we went there and settled in. You know, started conducting foot patrols, all very basic, low-level stuff out there, winning the hearts and minds of the civilians, providing yeah. them with food, security, water, and that kind of stuff. And it was going all right. You know, we, we conducted numerous foot patrols over the course of three, three and a half months. We had numerous firefights. Uh, in contact with the enemy never sustained any injuries or any fatalities always sent them lads packing with their tail between their legs mm. so morale within our company was pretty high yeah and then on the early hours of christmas eve myself and a handful of the lads were called up to the hq compound we were given a brief on our next foot patrol and then we were due to be given two or three days R&R with it being Christmas where we could open up our mail, you know, try and have some sort of curry goat for Christmas lunch and that kind of stuff um, and just try and enjoy the Christmas period, you know, given the yeah. circumstances and the environment that we we're working in. So we were given the brief, very, very basic stuff, went back to our compound, prepped all our kit and equipment, headed back up to the HQ compound and then formed up At the rear entrance of our camp, ready to leave. Now, the idea was that we would leave in two sections with eight men in each section. One would go north, one would go south. We were told that we were just to patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp and we weren't to go any more than 300 meters out. Now, to that point, we'd been out for six, seven, eight, nine hours, you know, two miles, three miles, four miles, whatever it was. We had a, a mission and an objective. Um, of what it was that we were supposed to do, but for this patrol it was literally leave the rear entrance of the camp, patrol around in in two sections, meet at the front entrance of the camp, so now the opposite side, secure the location, close things down and finish up for the day. So it was really just a way for us to maintain the momentum that we've been building to that point, to get boots out on the ground, to make sure that we didn't stay in camp too long, we weren't static too long, um, because you're obviously you're always being observed and watched, and if you're in camp too long you don't leave for three or four days, then I guess the enemy looked yeah. at that as a, as a good opportunity to, to launch an attack. So yeah. it was very basic, very low level, and the intelligence that we were being passed gave us no cause for concern. So the time came, uh, the rear entrance was opened, we left, I was second in command of the guys who went north, the other guys went south, and we went out and patrolled. About five hours into it, both sections now were at the opposite side of camp. So we're now at the front entrance, ready to mm. close things down uh, and finish up for the day. And the section that I was in, were positioned on a on a high piece of ground, probably the highest piece of ground for about a two-mile radius. Okay. Now, slightly beneath us was Ford, Operating Base Robinson, and then further still beneath that was the other section that we left with earlier in the day. So tactically, we were in a very advantageous position because not only could we see everything around us, you know, and yeah. observe and report back and, and all that kind of good stuff, but it's obviously a lot easier to fight going down a hill than it is up. So we were in a very good position to provide protection for that other section While they peeled back into the camp. They would then get behind the perimeter the wall, they'd be safe, they'd return the favor, we'd come down off the high feature, back in the camp, job done. So we were given our task in. We all started uh, with the guy in charge took his half of the section and he started giving them fire positions. I took my half of the section and directly in front of us, uh, about four or five meters, there was a shallow bowl in the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, ordinarily, what we would have done, you know, when we're out patrolling the go firm is we would have took cover behind a building, a wall, a tree, a rock, a shrub, whatever it was, simply to give us some form of protection, either from, from view or from fire but being up so high on what effectively was like a ridge line yeah we had we had none of those options so in my mind i thought if we get in this little bowl in the ground that's in front of us get down on our belt buckles that's the best form of protection that we're going to have no one's really going to be able to see us um All right, potentially they could launch a a mortar or a rocket or something on our position if they knew we were there. But we had limited the risk and factors by doing that. So we jumped in, all the lads started taking their positions. I stood back and observed for a little while. There's a couple of checks I had to do, um, make sure everyone was was tight and defensive and, and looked after. As soon as they gave me the thumbs up that they were happy and they had their arcs of fire, I then started slowly walking over towards a position that I'd selected for myself. And as I put my right knee on the ground to get onto my belly, I knelt on a detonated and improvised explosive device. Yeah. Yes. That's what happened. Yeah, it was was pretty rough. I, I do remember uh all of the the incident after that up until the point that i got put on the back of a helicopter uh, i won't go into to graphic detail about it but basically you know i knelt on this device i detonated it i, I thought we'd been attacked and um, mm-hmm. i didn't know what had happened and when this device erupted this huge dust cloud was created so temporarily mm-hmm. I, I was blinded um And my initial reaction was find out where this attack came from and neutralize it, neutralize the threat, get the guys out there, get somewhere safe and figure things out. It was only when this dust cloud settled that I, you know, looked around to try and figure out what was going on and and realized, you know, when I looked down at my legs and my arm that had been completely torn off by the blast that I realized what I had done you know, and that we weren't under attack. You know, I, I triggered an IED. Now, the next 45 minutes was just a adrenaline-fueled, chaotic mess. Um, yeah. i say mess. It, was, it wasn't a mess because the guys that I was working with were unbelievably professional and, and good at their jobs and what they were tasked to do. But from where I was, it was just a constant you know, it was, it was hectic and yeah. very surreal, very hectic. Bleeding now I'm in, I'm in this crater now that's like 12 feet deep. I think it was when I read the report. Um, so very difficult to evacuate me from, but all the lads, all, all the drills kicked in their SOPs. They got on with that. And a medic got to me very quickly because we were only about 200 meters from the HQ compound. Yeah. Um, And he did did what he had to do, Uh, pain relief, tourniquets, stretchers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, We ended up having to – so my left leg was completely ripped off. My right arm was still attached at the bicep, but the bones were gone. My right leg was still attached by what I I think was like a tendon or or a nerve or something. Uh Um, So the medic had to pick up my foot that was in my boot and cradle it on my stomach. Because as he was dragging me onto the stretcher, this, this thing was was stretching under the weight of the foot and boot and then him dragging me, which was quite painful. Yes. So he had to put my foot on my belly and then evacuate me off of this, first of all, out of this crater, then off this high feature down to the road where the vehicle was waiting. And then as the vehicle was going back into the camp, climbing up the the incline to get back into the front gate of the camp, uh, me and the medic fell out the back. Oh, fucking hell. The guy driving had, he swang around um, out of instinct, reached his hand out to grab something to hold me in, and ended up grabbing my femur bone that was poking out of my right leg, Um, which didn't hurt because I was on a lot of morphine. Um, Everything was very surreal. Um, You know, I I didn't feel any pain. And the, the last thing I can remember is, being in the back of the vehicle at the helicopter, landing site, and then the Chinook coming in. And yeah. it obviously creates quite a sandstorm from the propeller blades. I was right underneath where the exhaust was at the rear of it. So I felt that hot, heat down on me. And then, the, you know, the tailgate as it drops makes a kind of mechanical noise. I remember hearing that and then I, I blacked out. Um yeah. I don't remember anything from, from that point up until three, four days later when I woke yeah. back up in Selly Oak hospital in Birmingham, back in the UK. It's,
0: um, it's a hell of a fucking story, mate. Hell of a story. Yeah, and that, that was the sport of uh, action. Yeah. And that, what you, you said to, I think it, reading your book, you said someone talking about your dancing days being over like quite soon afterwards.
1: So when I was in the back of the vehicle, the guy driving was actually a very good friend of mine. He was my sergeant major in Afghanistan, but obviously mm. we've become very close since that day. But we're driving along this road, and uh, they, these are not tarmac roads. That, you know, yeah. you think you've seen potholes in the UK. This is, all they are is potholes. Yeah. And so I'm getting thrown around in the back, and I'm, you know, kind of forget, given the situation that he's my sergeant major, so I'm swearing at him and screaming you yeah, know we'll you that one. <laughs> right so i'm like slow down i'll get you know my, my back's hurting my, my i remember that my ass was hurting a lot which was apparently mm. something to do with morphine but uh when we got in there uh it was the, the medic i think you know he, he's trying to talk to me constantly and keep me conscious and he said mm. you've sustained injuries to your lower limbs and I said, "No, no shit, Sherlock. I guess my dancing days are over," <laughs> which um, apparently spread throughout Afghanistan quite quickly. Um, I bet, it, I bet yeah. it did, mate. And the lads were were happy that I still had my sense of humour given the situation. But yeah, um, the last thing I remember about all of that is is that helicopter landing and getting thrown on the back.
0: Yeah, it's mm-hmm. mental that like it's it's not something people actually hear that often is, is the, the real story. Like every now and then there will be like something on the telly where there'll be like a two, two minute snippet. But, but to hear you go into all, all that detail, it's, it's like, it's, it's awakening that, like I said earlier to you, like you're, you're a real person. You went through this and someone tried to pull you back into a car by grabbing your femur bone. It's, mm. it's fucking brutal. And the fact that you could still crack a, crack a joke at that time it's just it says it all about the core doesn't it about the marines and like dark humor and stuff and that was actually one of the questions i had for you is how do you feel like dark humor ha- helps in situations like that to get you through it and has it been like a big part in your recovery being able to make a joke of it or like trying to even even when you know you don't want to joke about it just making the jokes
1: yeah i mean it's massive mate you know one of the things that given the environment situation i say that one of the things that we're very lucky in the military to have is that when i went through rehab i'm surrounded by 80 90 other military men and women who have got their own injuries you know paraplegics Mm -hmm. tetraplegics amputees wheelchair users all that kind of stuff but we all have that same or similar mentality of using mm. dark humour. And I swear to God, I'll tell you a quite a funny little story, but when we got, when I got to Headley Court for rehab, straight away, another bootneck, Harris Tatakis, came over to me. He was injured on the tour before me, took me under his wing. So there were two bootnecks. And unfortunately, as the tours went on, um, more and more Royal Marines and, and army guys and girls were coming through the system. But, you know, in the core, we kind of do do things a little bit different and, and the dark humor can be a little bit darker. I think at sometimes, and we would, we, we were doing stuff that to us was hilarious, but to other branches of the military, they hadn't quite experienced that level of it yet. Yeah. So we ended up having to get, a Royal Marines warrant officer drafted in to Headley Court to basically babysit us (laughs) because they were like, these guys are mental. Like the stuff they're doing that they find is funny. And I I get it, you know, maybe other branches of the military don't quite, haven't been exposed to it yet at that level. So we ended up, and actually funnily enough, the guy who ended up being the liaison officer at Headley Court looking after it was supposed to be just the injured Royal Marines, but he ended up looking after everybody. Yeah, it was Bob Toomey, my sergeant major, who was grabbing my femur in the vehicle. He came in, yeah. and he looked after everybody, and he, you know he kept us in check and he made sure that he was phenomenal. He got he got the MBE for what he did. The guy yeah. should have got knighted for what he did. You know he just he worked twenty four seven constantly, just making sure lads were looked after. But I'm digressing a little bit. Going back. I to think the I dog, was in.
0: I was in Hunter with his son, I think. Yeah, yeah. George. I was in, yeah, yeah. George Toomey. I was, I was, I was in a troop with him at yeah. some point. Out of my six or seven troops, I was in.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, and but it was great. And the dark humor, he got it, obviously. Mm. But you know, some of the, some of the stuff we used to do, it it really helped. And a lot of people will mm. find that hard to take especially and i'll say this with respect like civilians mm. you know if you say some of the things i'll give you an example right like there was a stage where there's two there were two lifts in headley court right to go between where you stayed and the therapy rooms and all that kind of stuff and there was a stage when they were getting upgraded so one was out of action and we only had the use of one so someone had got the lift will go down it'd be like there'd be like four amputees in there And we'd walk off to the gym or to prosthetics or whatever. And then we would push the fish tank in the lift for all the pot plants in there. So when it went up, no one else could get in it. Like if there was like a a guy in a wheelchair, (laughs) he couldn't get in the lift. So, you know what I mean? Things like that, that, and they, they found it funny too, right? Because they, they use dark humor too, but just all, all those crazy things. Like there was another guy who had severe, he had been blown up, lost both his legs and he wasn't totally blind, but maybe 80%. Yeah. And one day we, we got his prosthetics and where you put your residual limb into the leg, it's called the socket. Yeah. Filled him with aqueous cream, cause he couldn't see. And then he, you know, he plonked his legs in there and they just of moisturizer. And uh, he thought it was hilarious. And you know, <laughs> just those things. And I always say this to people and they find it hard to, to compute but when you consider why I was in rehab, because I'd lost three limbs, when I look back, that's some of the best memories that I've got throughout my entire career is, is rehabilitating myself in that environment yeah. with those people that are going through the same thing.
0: Yeah, because you, you don't play those jokes on people that you don't think can handle it. And and when you're in right. that situation, like you know that they'll do it to you, you do it to them. It's like an unwritten rule of... Let's all fuck with each other because we need to keep our spirits high. Because if we don't fuck me, we're going to be depressed, boys.
1: Exactly. Right. Mm. And you know, I got I got smashed by lads constantly because I had the disadvantage (laughs) of only having one arm, and it was my my weaker arm. Mm. So you know, like tie my shoelaces together on my prosthetics. I'd go down there to walk, (laughs) and I'd have like sixty-five knots with both my shoes tied together that I couldn't undo because I've only got one hand. (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: But it gives you something to do in the day, because I'm sure there was like days where you just been doing your rehab and yeah. going down to prosthetics. You're like, oh, "What am I going to do?" Oh well, I suppose I'll just untie sixty knots. Yeah, exactly. That'll keep my brain busy, but and I'll it probably you, helped it really- you getting more like de- dexterity in that left hand.
1: Oh, exactly. absolutely. You don't realize <laughs> like it at the time, but when you look back, yeah, you're like, actually, you did me a favour because I spent an hour <laughs> undoing those laces, and now I can use my fingers. <laughs> But it really, yeah. I'll tell you what hit home for me was I came home on a leave period and I was asked to go and visit a civilian, uh, a woman called Liz, who I don't know her exact story, but I think she went into hospital for an operation but she, and she reacted to the anaesthesia. And so mm. she went under, able-bodied, and when she came out, I think this is a story... She had both her feet missing, one of her arms and her fingers down to her knuckles, to the the second knuckles on her hand. So I was asked to go and speak to her to try and raise her morale and let her know if things would be all right. And I met her at the prosthetic center and she turned up in an ambulance and she was in a wheelchair and there were like ratchet straps on each corner. It reminded me of like Hannibal Lecter, right? Just sat in the ambulance like this. Yeah, she yeah. came out and we go into the civilian rehab center and there's the next it's like a ghost town there's hardly anyone in there no atmosphere uh, It's 45 minutes for her to put her legs on she got 15 minutes of walking practice and then went back in the ambulance where she had to wait another six weeks to get another appointment and i was like so now this lady's going to go back to her flat where she lives on her own and wait six weeks you know, just getting inside her head with no one around her having that banner or that sense of humour. And that's when I realised, you know, we're doing eight hours a day rehab, five days a week. The evenings mm-hmm. we spend together, we're out eating together, you know, having fun together, going to the cinema together. You know, that's why my memories are so good of, of my time mm-hmm. in rehab. And this poor lady and, you know, civilians in general had a completely different routine. So I can almost, not almost, I can completely understand why... A, it takes them so much longer to rehabilitate and B, why it's so much more difficult for them because yeah. those intangibles, like that, that body body system and, and the lads having them, you know, them around you, are, are
0: massive. Yes, yeah, so, so in terms of like prosthetics and stuff like that, obviously this happened now almost like 13, 13 years ago, is it? Coming up this Christmas? Damn, it it is,
1: yeah, is it 13 years this Christmas Eve, yeah.
0: Damn. So, How's your prosthetics have they changed since then? They have. Have. You, see, have you seen a lot of development in in that area?
1: I don't know if I'd call it a lot because I don't know what a lot is in yeah. the prosthetic world. But I, I'm very fortunate as well in that we have always been issued with the, the Lamborghini of prosthetics. You know, yeah. there, there's lots of different levels, and there's some real terrible ones, and there's some great ones. Mm. And in the military, we always have, are given the top end, great stuff. And initially, I had a thing called a Sea Leg, uh, an, an Ottobock Sea Leg, which was the best at the time, which was phenomenal and still is phenomenal. Mm. And then they upgraded that to what is now the Ottobock X three or the Genium, which Auto-Bock. is Ottobock. Um, Ottobock. Oh, okay, I was we transformers there. No, not Ottobock. No. <laughs> um, and it's the same premise, but it's they just advanced it with a lot more features to make it a lot more user friendly. I've got an app on my iPhone which connects to my leg, which means I can change modes and I can adjust or reduce the resistance in them. I can change things like, you know, they, they beep when the battery's running low and everything. I can change the pitch and the volume, little, silly little things like that. Yeah. Um, I got a lot of control over my my prosthetics just through an app, and then anything else I need. I go to a prosthetic center, but you know, these things, they're expensive, you know, they're, they're mm-hmm. touching on a hundred grand all in yeah. Of them with the sockets and the right componentry and everything. Yeah. But you know, these are my life. I haven't used a wheelchair since the 9th of June, 2009. When I don't have my legs on, I'm walking around my house or a hotel or, or someone else's on my ass. And that's out a choice, but yeah. you can't do that outside you know no. walk go around the city center on your ass it's that and the other. so without my legs i don't have a life yeah you know, i don't want to be a wheelchair user
0: no definitely definitely and it's that mindset like being probably from being in the marines you're like i'm not being in a world you know it's probably because you don't want to get in a lift and see there's a fish tank in there and know that you yeah can't move. <laughs> well, I you, it's a it's a bunch of different factors right but
1: and a lot of people would probably don't think about this but you imagine in a manual wheelchair right you see people in city centres and everything when they've got two arms and they can propel themselves relatively easily, right? Yeah. When you've got one arm, you've got to go backwards and forwards and left and right just using one arm. So when you try and go up an incline, it's not only is it ridiculously awkward because you snake up like this, yeah. but just, it blows your shoulder and your elbow out. And you know, if I used one, by the time I got to 40 years old, my, my left arm would be dead. You know what I mean? So unless you've got this big, chunky, battery-powered electronic thing, which I would need a big old Volkswagen transporter valve. You know, it's all just stuff that I was at 24 when I got injured. I'm 37 now. It's all stuff that a young-ish person doesn't want. So when you've got these, you know, ridiculously high-tech, pretty cool prosthetics as an option, that's the option that you want to take.
0: Yeah. Where where does the money come from for that? Is that through charities and stuff like that that help?
1: It, it's been a combination for me of both. Um, first of all, from the military. But then what happened to me was because I was the first triple amputee in the UK, I sought out a mentor and I found a guy in America who had been run over by a train when he was 15 back in 2002. Yeah, And he was... He was at where I wanted to be at, which was, you know, driving vehicles without adaptions, traveling independently, not using a wheelchair, doing sports, um, swimming in the ocean, you know, all those kind of things that I couldn't do back then what I wanted to do. So I went out to meet him and his team and they trained me and they, they looked at my legs and they, they adjusted things. So it was all right for me. And and that was why 9th of June 2009 is when I went out there. And that was, like I said, the last time I used a wheelchair. But when I came back, I was refused funding for that stuff. So I had to then go to the Royal Marines charity, who for the last 10 years have been funding myself, uh, a friend of mine, John White, another friend, Ian Bishop, both triple amputees and, and double amputees respectively, who mm. also went out there to get mentored and trained. Um, they've been funding their treatment too. So it's, it's a cross between a bit of NHS and a bit of charity funding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um, you've done stuff for charity in the past. Is it? it's, it's the RMA that you work with and yeah. Reorg as yeah. well, right? Yeah. I've, so done, you, I've
1: done a lot with different charities over the years.
0: What have you got coming up? Because I saw, I saw a post on Instagram the other day when you were chatting about you wanted to do a 5K with your kids
1: yeah so i i do i've been working for 10 years for the royal marines charity now so i'm an insider mm. and during covid I've, I've kept an eye on other charities to see how they've been negatively affected but on the inside you know with the royal marines charity I, i've heard from the horse's mouth how much of an impact it's had financially all of our big events have been cancelled we have a dinner in November of the year in London, which is our, our main, uh, you know, attraction, if you like, where we raise close to seven figures, can't do it now. So we we've taken like other charities a massive hit.
0: Yeah. And
1: I, when I sit there and I see it day to day, something just has been bubbling away inside me when I, when I've been thinking I've got to do something here, I've got to get back on the fundraising bandwagon, go out and do something, raise the profile, raise the funds, you know and, and try and fill that gap that, that we've now got. Yeah. So I started drafting out a bunch of ideas about things that I want to do, but I'm also ridiculously busy um, with the projects yeah. we talked about earlier the second book, the editing, the first book, the film project, and all that. So I, I don't want to do things like you know, behind me there that was when I ran across America up with a bunch of bootnecks that's three and a half thousand miles, it's three months out of my life. That one there, the black shirt, is when we, we cycled around the UK coastline. That's never 3,000 miles. But those are big events that take a lot of time. Yeah. So, I thought, how can I best do this where it's not taking a massive amount of time? I don't have to dedicate myself to a massive amount of training. I can be in, I can be out, I can include people, and I can get it done. So, yeah. It's like running the 5K. You know, I want I wanna, if restrictions allow, maybe go out and do like evening with events where people come along. You know, not fancy things, you know, fish and chips and pizza. I'll get on stage, gob off, show some horrible photographs, do Q&A's, <laughs> yeah. all that kind of stuff where people pay to come, Yeah. where I can donate percentages of the money to charity. Mm. So I'm, I'm just working my way through this list right now of, of things for next year, what's realistic, what I can fit in and in and around the busy schedule that I've already got
0: yeah yeah definitely it's um it's something probably not a lot of people think about is the impact that covid is having on charities and like all the events like the marathon was cancelled that's probably millions of pounds that goes to various different charities each time and like with the rma i think there's certain groups of people nowadays that probably don't care for the military as much as they should and don't realize that real people get affected in very, very real ways mm-hmm. by what happens um, out there. And I think maybe because uh, there's not anything going on at the moment that's like official, is there? Right. There's probably, pro- probably a few, that, I live in Bournemouth, so there's probably a few of my neighbours down in Paul that are probably mm-hmm. off off in different places. Um, but how have you seen things change since people have withdrawn Um, like troops from Afghanistan, Iraq and places like that in terms of contribution to charities? uh, Has that taken a downturn?
1: I think holistically it has because it's not, you know, for 10 years it was in the news like every day. Mm. Do you know what I mean? People like myself and and blokes I went through rehab with getting injured, climbing mountains, running So it was always in the public's consciousness. And, you know, the support, was i'll say was is still huge but yeah. because there's so much other stuff taking people's attention now that i don't think they've forgotten it's just not in their face all the time now so yeah you know think things have changed and actually having this conversation this morning with my wife what i feel really proud about being an ex bootleg and an insider in a charity is where we've been hit hard. What I've seen is the Royal Marines family coming together to help overcome that. So, for example, we, we ran a campaign called Heroes at Home, where we asked people to do like virtual marathons and bike rides in their garages on treadmills and terrible trainers and everything. And it literally was like in a passing comment, oh, you know, maybe we could do this. All right, let's run with it. Right. And li- this week we've just tipped over 100 grand in donations nice. for that.
0: That's amazing. Which is
1: phenomenal because the Royal Marines charity is all about the Royal Marines family. And now we're like you know all good military units, we need help, people have come together. Mm. Where I think, and and this is just my opinion, I might be wrong, some of the, the bigger beasts are, are really struggling is where they solely relied on the public. Right. Yeah. And now they're not in the public eye the public have got their own issues to deal with. You know, people are losing their jobs, their businesses. They're not wanting to spend money. Christmas is around the corner. So the donations dry up. And if you just rely on the public and they've got their own stuff to deal with, you're going to suffer. But where the Royal Marines family really come into their own is that we rely on the Royal Marines family. Yes, we rely on the public, but we all, we're all supporting each other around the clock, 7 and I've, I've, it's it's so nice to see it, and you just see all these guys stepping up now, doing yeah. things like, "Well, come on, we've got to support our own," and you know, just pulling out all the stops.
0: Yeah, it is it is a massive naughty boys club, big big family in the, yeah. the Royal Marines. Uh-huh. Like, strangely, the the day I'm talking to you about everything to do with the Royal Marines this evening, I'm going to meet someone that I was in training with, like seven years ago. And I haven't haven't seen him for seven years. He's a Zaffa. He's doing some CP course down in Pool, And I'm going to meet him tonight. And I can guarantee the conversation tonight will be absolutely no different to what it was seven years ago. Because it's those kind of friends that you make in the military are the ones that really do become like your family and sort of friends for life.
1: Absolutely. And not even ones that you even meet. Like in the core, I think because it's so small and because everyone goes through the same training I, I've, I've been in airports before where i've just met a random person that i've never met before that was in the core, and then i ended up like going out on the piss with him yeah. <laughs> i've never met him before but yeah. we're talking like we were best mates for 10 years you know yeah, and, and nice. that's what i love about it
0: yeah how, how do you feel like i know we said about this before but training Obviously, I was in training. I, I came off filing entry was the exercise mm-hmm. that managed to smash my ankle to bits and then various other injuries. All the corporals hammered it into us at the time about how much it had changed. And I, and I hear some of the people that I was in training with now taking troops through and they're saying that it's sort of changing. How, how much have you seen training change since when you first went in in the early 2000s? I know the boots have got um, a lot better.
1: Yeah. I mean... It has to change, isn't it? I mean, if it didn't, everyone would be running around with SLRs, wearing putty boots, you know what I mean? In olive green, you know, 50-year-old uniforms. It's got to change and you've got to adapt and, you know, you've got to move with the times. Where I think it's really positively changed and I was having this conversation and a mate of mine, he's still in the corner, he's a PTI. I was down the bottom field with him a couple months ago watching lads doing regains over the tank and one lad fell in. And I literally prepped myself for the PTI to grill him and smash him up and down the hills and and you know, do press-ups till he was throwing up. Yeah. Uh, he swam up the tank, the PTI pulled him over to the side and he coached him. He's like, Right, well, what did you do wrong? Right, remember when I said this, remember I said that, get up and do it again, listen to what I'm telling you, and we'll crack it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I shit you not. The guy went up there soaking wet, got back on the rope. He went, now listen to me. And he talked him through the regain and he did it like it was the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. So, I think they've moved away from what they used to do which is thrash us. Which was great because it was character building. Do you know what I mean? It prepared you for the very, very worst. But they've moved away from that a little bit into more of a coaching role. And me and me and uh Me and Ginge both agreed that when we passed out of training, we both said the same thing. If we went to a unit and you said, right, Mike, I want you to take the lads for a section attack, I'd probably have to pull out an aid memoir or ring up my mate and say, listen, can you talk me through this? Because when I did it in training, I was so tired from being smashed that I didn't retain all the information right. Whereas Mm. lads now come pass out as young Marines could probably do a corporal's job because they're there's so much better coached than we were back in the day but yeah you'd always get the open wasn't like that in our day wasn't like yeah. that in my day. and i'm like well it wouldn't be you know that's why you look at the core now and they're doing things with computers you know yeah. information <laughs> technology and you know it's the way the world's going and that you know eventually there's going to be your youtubers now that are Great on Call of Duty, that would be in the military flying drones from hundreds yeah. of miles doing a job that saves ten lives. Yeah, we've got to adapt, otherwise we'd all be running around with commando daggers in our teeth, you know, <laughs> creeping around in the floor, which is great, but it's just not wholly necessary, I don't think, as it once yeah. was back in the day.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to look at it because um, I hear people dripping or It's just not the same as it used to be, and even I think that even changes year to year. But I I certainly remember in training, like the sleep deprivation was a shit. I was real bad at my admin. So I just got smashed all the time. I remember those first two weeks in foundation. I was probably getting like two hours sleep a night just because I just couldn't iron for shit. Couldn't Mm -hmm. wash my stuff properly. I'd be late into the drying room. I'd be waiting there till four in the morning for stuff to dry. Mm -hmm. end up just not even bothering getting into bed. And it definitely takes it out of you because as soon as you get into those important lectures you're asleep lights out you're straight to sleep but i suppose nowadays if if, if they can stay awake for them lectures then all we'll will do you step, step ahead um well, yeah. what was your funniest story from training though
1: oh god um or one, off. <laughs> so one of so one of the funny ones was i think it might be in the book i'm pretty sure it is. it was right at the end of training the way we did it is we did our commando test first mm. and then we did two weeks field firing and the final exercise. Mm. So the thing I really wasn't looking forward to was was the commando tests. I wanted to get them out of the way quick so that the super hard physical stuff was done. And then it was just getting through the, the last couple of weeks. So we passed the commando tests. We were on, I think the second week of our live firing exercise. And I was getting a little bit cocky. And I was like, yeah, it's only around the corner. We're pretty much done so we can slack off a bit. And we got thrashed one day to this tree, which was about this big in the distance. It was like everyone down to the tree and back. So me and my best mate, Sammy, were running down as the, as the whole troop. And there was this bun line in the ground. We all had to run over it, run down it. And as we went over the other side of it, I grabbed him and I yanked him down to the ground because the training team couldn't see us because of this huge hill in the ground. So I was like, right, when the troop come back, We'll get up in the middle of the pack. We'll get back in. We'll act like we're hanging out our asses. And we haven't been thrashed as bad as the rest of them. Which, in theory, was a great idea. But the training team saw what we did. So then when we got back, they called. It, they singled us both out, which is when I shit my pants, thinking I'm going to get back-trooped at this crucial stage in training. They're going to back us out. And uh, they just thrashed me and Sammy. For like hours, yeah. backwards and forwards to this tree, just constantly to prove a point. So that was, you know, that was kind of funny looking back on it. Um, <laughs> not at the time, but I don't know, man. There's so many. You end up with so many cool stories when you go through. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: I, n- I never you- forget when uh, I think I was like week seven or something. There was a guy in our troop, and he kept sleep talking. Started that he started getting up every now and then. So me and a guy in our room, we'd go over to his bed and we'd shake him like, on the landing, on the landing. Like, well, you know, yeah. everyone calls to the landing. So we'd get out there and I said, like, no, outside, outside. So he was out there in his pants and he's fully like just on the edge of being awake, but he was definitely sleepwalking. We got oh, him gosh. outside and then he left him out there and he came back in like five minutes later. He goes, lads, where is everyone? Where is everyone? You said they're outside. <laughs> 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 they led him, led him, this poor sleepwalking boy out there. Uh, but it's um, it's definitely a place to be. Uh, do you think would you recommend it now, the military to people? I know you've had like a lot of experience with it.
1: Absolutely, because mm. it's it's taught me things that carry on into my my life now. For example, in my situation, I don't treat my prosthetics any different to I would have treated my rifle. As in, I maintain them, I clean them, I look after them. I can't live without them. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. Don't let them out of my sight. I don't mistreat them. They, they are like my rifle when I was serving. Yeah. You know, and that's how, and I, and I take that into all areas of my life. You know, being a triple amputee, you said your admin was bad. My, mine's pretty spot on. And those mm-hmm. skills that I learned really help me as, as a disabled yeah, yeah. person, having great admin. So, yeah you know there's, there's multiple examples but just things like timekeeping you know Discipline. now it takes things take me longer but then I know prior preparation and planning prevents piss poor performance do
0: yeah. you know what I mean
1: so all the little <laughs> things that I learned in training and through serving now serve me well as a, a disabled adult do you know what I mean yeah
0: yeah um, definitely definitely and um just before I let you go there because I'm just conscious of time i know you one of the other charities you're working for is Riog and jiu jitsu something i i know this podcast is mainly about books but i do try and encourage as many people as i can to get into jiu jitsu mm-hmm. how have you found that has had like an impact on your mental health because obviously there's times in the book that we spoke about before where you you were pretty low and you say mm-hmm. you're always honest about it how important do you think it is for like organizations like reorg and getting people into jiu-jitsu for their mental health and stuff like that
1: the one thing i'll say and this may i mean i may say this the wrong kind of way to anyone that hasn't done jiu-jitsu right so we've all we've all we all deal with issues right and it's all relevant to who you are right we've all got bills to pay families to to raise jobs to go to bosses to satisfy and all that right so we all got issues that at times will get on top of us and sometimes they'll dominate our thoughts but you can't think about any of that shit when someone's got you in a rear naked choke right you can't do it because your only focus at that moment is surviving being tapped out right so it's so beneficial from that point of view as an escape from the day-to-day stresses that can have a negative impact on people's mental health so And I, I learned that early on, you know, because I, I was so busy with a million different things and taking an hour out where I can't look at my phone and I can't answer phone calls or emails and I'm not thinking about, oh, I've got this appointment, that appointment, my diary's packed, I've got to do this project, that project, my boss wants this, so I've got to pick my kids up from school. I'm just present, you know what I mean, and, and trying to survive. And as a bloke from the military, you know, that alpha male, masculine side of me, it's important to feel like a warrior. Do yeah. you know what I mean? And when you're sweating and your heart's racing and you're, you're fighting with somebody, it makes me feel the way that I like to feel, you yeah. know? And like I said, with the military helping me in my life now, outside of the military, so does Jiu Jitsu. You know, yeah. what I learned on the mat translates into my life off the mat. And a silly example, what I'll use, and uh, Conor McGregor can probably illustrate it better than me when he fought Donald Cerrone. But like, my sh- your shoulders are your shoulders, right? Yeah. You used them in that fight to break Donald's nose and to beat him, right? I, I never thought about using my shoulders for anything before, right? But now I'm missing yeah. three limbs. I learned how to choke people using my shoulders in jiu-jitsu. And then when I was out of that, I started figuring out ways to use them in my daily life so I could use them to carry things. So I'd put like something here, And put it up to my my neck, and I could carry something there. Well, I'd never used before. When I was silly little things, I'd I'd go bend into my car, and whereas before I have to bend over and put all the lower strain, the strain on my lower back. I'd then put my arm stump on my shoulder on the roof of the car, bend in, and do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and use my shoulders in my life to to help me. It's. So I was learning all these things on the mats that I was then going, oh, I could use this in in civil life outside of the mats, and it just it, it just holistically improved my life, and and I'd recommend yeah. anybody anybody to try it.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I always try and push people into Jiu Jitsu because I I found Jiu Jitsu at a time where, like for me, when I when I left the Marines, like I didn't want to. It, it it was a case of I was super super depressed with my situation because so I'd been in Hunter for about ten months and it's I, th- I think Hunter's a place where people either go to rot or they go to get better and I'd, I'd I'd had my had my feel of trying to get better and I was starting to rot and I, I had that option of like well you can stay here for another three months and we're going to discharge you or you can just leave now so I was like Do you know what I'm bite the bullet here I'm gonna go and I'll leave and I didn't find anywhere where I had the sense of community or like a physical excerpt where I was actually enjoying it until I found jujitsu and started hanging out like with with the lads at jujitsu and with the girls that go to jujitsu, like it is a sense of community.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, mate, it's, it's made such a difference to like my mental health. I've even just started training again like the last couple of weeks after having a bit of time off with COVID, um, obviously just doing solo drills, um, but it's just made such a difference. Oh. Done by seven thirty, smiling for the rest of the day. It's ideal.
1: And and I, I will one hundred percent agree with you on the community aspect of it. I it's it's the closest thing I've found to military camaraderie is it, in mm. jiu jitsu. Yeah. Um, there, there's a whole lifestyle around it, and and a, a mental state, and just that. Oh, obviously, every sport or anything attracts. Dickheads, you know, a minority of yeah. them, but the majority are just all, they all think the same, the same kind of values, same kind of morals. And before I was injured, you know, I, I fought competitively in in Muay Thai, full contact kickboxing, and, and boxing. And those sports, they're great sports, but the, it wasn't the same, as in we didn't finish training and go for coffee together. Or no. WhatsApp, you know, you didn't WhatsApp back then, but you didn't, you know, text each other. Send pigeon. Or, yeah, or, or send little, uh, yeah, or send little videos to each other about ways to improve your technique. It was just we mm. meet once or twice a week, we train together, and then we went our separate ways. But with jujitsu, mm. it's completely different.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Well, Mark, thanks so much for for coming on. I think um, if anyone doesn't want to buy the book. Then you're dumb, uh, <laughs> but you like you say. So what's what's coming up next? I know we we've alluded to a film, a second book um, coming out as well. But what what's next? What's on? Yeah, the-
1: I'm, I'm currently editing Man Down, um, making a few tweaks to it, finishing off the second book. I've signed a contract in lockdown to make a movie out of, I guess, the combined books. So my, my life story mm. so far. Um, I really want to, and and I have started, I want to write either a third book or a series of books which are based around personal development. So everything that I've learned in my life through the Marines, through bodyguarding, through life as a doorman, through jujitsu, being a dad, personal development that I've studied relentlessly over 10 years, everything that I've took, you know, Mm. and, and have been useful to me, put onto paper into a yeah. book and let other people read it. You
0: yeah. know what I mean?
1: In the hope that it can in help them with issues that they've got. And then I want to write some kids books. Yeah. i really nice. keen to write some kids books based on my story where I won't give too much away, but it's basically my story, but I get superpowers. And kids can read it. And then I want to tell a bunch of what I think are important lessons for for young Kids, about why you shouldn't bully people and yeah. you know why you should uh, not worry about failing at things in life because failure is part of the road to success and that kind of stuff, and you shouldn't get down on it and resilience and all those kind of things. In, in a series yeah. of books based around one this character, it's just yeah, that's awesome trying to, trying to find the time to get down and do it, and I don't want to jump into it too deep and do it wrong. Yeah. You know what I, mean? so I need to get the right people on board who can guide me in the right direction to make sure my energy's not wasted and yeah, definitely. In the wrong direction. Yeah, so yeah, nice. that's
0: some of the things. Hey, that's awesome. Well, I have to get you back on when, when each of these different projects yeah. come out and then we can, we can have another chat. I've really enjoyed um, the chats today. And I usually ask guests this and, and I've got to the point we haven't spoken about any other books. What would be your number one book? Can't be your own um, that you'd recommend for people to read.
1: God, I've read so many, but the, the book that first got me into personal development, so sent me down that road of, of reading and, and listening to all these people that are experts in the field over the years was uh, Tony Robbins. Mm. I think it was, God, I've read so. Much. I've done all his courses and been to his seminars. I think it's, it wasn't Unleash the Power Within is his
0: seminar, Awaken the Giant Within, is it?
1: That's the one, yeah. Awaken the yeah, Giant. There's yeah. two of them. There's a green one and there's a red one. And I always forget the names of them. But those were the two that I read initially. Um, that set me on like a 10 plus year path of, of reading all these other guys um, yeah. that are in the same kind of field. And I learned a lot yeah. from them. And I did the, uh, I'm reading a Bruce Lee one now, The Warrior Within. And with all of that, I did it exactly what you said. I, I took what was useful, discarded what wasn't, and I put my own little spin on it.
0: You know? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's it. Mark, thanks so much for um, coming on. Just to, before I stop recording here, where can people find you? Where's the best place?
1: I'm all over social media, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. All my handles are at Mark Hornrod. Um, yeah. All better very easy to find me. Website markhomer.com. Um and I think my phone number is on the back of the men's toilet door down in Jester's and Union Street.
0: Oh, <laughs> no, well, it's I'll, not I'll, I'll, <laughs> Oh what? I was gonna plan go, yeah, this again. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank thanks so much, for coming out on Mark. You're a very, very inspirational bloke, and that was a great chat.
1: Thank you, mate. Appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you very much for listening into that chat, guys. That was One of the most inspirational podcasts I've ever done. Mark is an absolute legend and clearly there is a lot coming up for him in the future. Since recording, um, obviously Mark's been awarded his MBE, so congratulations to Mark for that. Um, And if you want to buy Man Down, of course, I'll put a link in the description of this episode final bit of housekeeping here is the podcast is brought to you by pure sport cbd so if you're interested in cbd you don't have to listen to me rattle on about it if you head to pure you can take a quiz on there you can see which cbd products would work for you or you can do your further reading because i know it's something that people don't believe in at the moment because the associations with normal marijuana weed whatever you want to call it but it helps me massively with my sleep and it helps me massively with my anxiety. So, you don't have to take it from me. Of course, you can head to puresportcbd.com. If you do decide that you want to purchase some CBD, then use the code Read 20 and you get 20% off. But that's it from me. If you're new here, give us a follow on Instagram. It's at Read with the number 2 and not the word. But thank you for listening in and I'll be back very soon.